Welcome back to our Q&A time. So our first question, in your book you say that uh, we should not make decisions based on feelings. Would you explain the difference between feelings and emotions? I see those words as synonyms. So they're just two ways of saying the same thing, feelings and emotions. So I don't have a difference in them. So we shouldn't make emotion-based decisions. We shouldn't make feeling-based decisions. That does not mean we ignore our emotions or our feelings, repress or avoid our emotions or our feelings. They can motivate us. They can inform us that something's going on. But those emotions and feelings should be processed through our good reason and judgment, understand what they're trying to tell us, and make truth and evidence-based decisions. Uh, and many of the best decisions you will make in life will be the ones that at the moment you're implementing them don't feel good they're the hard ones uh, Isaiah 45, 6, and 7 says, uh, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I uh, bring prosperity and cre create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. I'm trying to see this through design law lens, but God seems uh, pretty insistent that uh, he, it is he who does these things. And it is not then, and if not then, it seems that the Bible is wrong here. Please help. Okay, so first I want to say, when you have questions like this, and say to our online audience, when you have questions like this, go to our website, go to the search engine on our website, and type in that text, uh, or type in, um, God um, makes evil, or whatever the concern is, uh, because I've written two blogs on this, um, uh, one in 2009, one in 2018, that, uh, that, uh, that answers this question, and... Um, and I will give I will give a, a brief answer again anyway. The first blog points out that and there's there's a couple of different ways this can be understood, all consistent with the design law view. One, many places in scripture, uh, God is attributed or taking responsibility for things he allows. Uh, uh, King Saul died by suicide, but in one place in scripture it says the Lord put him to death for his rebellion. That's the language. He put him to death, actively killed him even though we know that Saul actually killed himself. In another place, it actually describes it. That's another place it says Saul, Saul killed himself. So, same thing with Pharaoh's heart. In, I think, three places it said God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In three places it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And in one place it simply says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Well, if you understand how hearts get hardened, um, God is the source of truth. When he presents truth to your mind, he leaves you free to decide. If you decide against the truth, what happens to your heart? It hardens, okay? Uh, if you're never presented with the truth and never have to decide on the point, your heart doesn't harden as much. And so God hardened Pharaoh's heart by bringing him truth over and over and over and over again, but Pharaoh hardened his heart by rejecting the truth over and over and over and over again, okay? And so um, that, that's how we understand that. It's the process of how reality works. So one way to understand this is, God, is, is their mindset of the people at the time. They attribute to God anything he permits. And that's a common way they describe things. If God permits it, then he causes it. It's not in a Western mind of causality where they take an active action to inflict it. It is a passive process. If the, if the deity allows it, then it's his will for it to happen. Therefore, he's causal. That's how the ancients thought. But there's actually another way to understand it as well. And, uh, well, and this goes to how translators translate. Now, what, are your, what is your law lens when you go to translate? If you have an imperial law lens, then you translate it in the way that many of them do, that God causes evil. But um, I'm going to share with you, um, and, and this idea became, um, became orthodoxy since um, Constantine converted, and the Roman church taught uh, an imperial view of God, and that God makes up laws and um, punishes sinner for sin and so forth. This became orthodoxy, and behind the Reformation came, um, they might have argued certain points of doctrine. No Reformed church 
has called called and said, wait, God's law doesn't work this way. They all still teach it. And that's part of that wine of Babylon that they all still teach, that we are, we are called to call people back to worship him who made the heavens and the earth and say, no, God's law is not like human law. It's the law that the creator sustains and builds reality upon. So there is um, Henry Wright in his book, A More Excellent Way, uh, writes the following about this very verse. Some say God created evil because of Isaiah 45, 7. Uh, I, and, the, and this is the um, translation that he chose to quote in his book. I form light and create the darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things, Isaiah 45, 7. In the strongest concordance, the Hebrew word create under number 1254 is bara, uh, in this, it is the same word uh, used by God to, uh, when he created, but there is a second meaning in the Hebrew. And the second meaning of the word is, quote, to break down, tear down, cut down like wood, unquote. So let's read the scriptures again with a strong second definition of the same word. I form the light and tear down and destroy the darkness. I make peace and tear down and cut down like wood everything that is evil. I am the author of the dest- and the destructor, the, I am the author of the destruction of evil. Wow. So that would be how I'd answer that. I like this, this both those explanations, but I like this one better. What is your opinion of the nothic, nothic, nothetic? Yeah, what is your view of the nothetic meta, meta, uh, method of counseling? Uh, the, this is a, a term coming, I think, out of a Greek term, a uh, Greek word in the New Testament that uh, basically is about Christian counseling, Christians in the church, and the Bible talks about counsel one another and so forth. Um, I, I think that we have to be clear that this is Christian counseling Christians on life matters of Christianity, and this is not professional counseling, counseling people's mental health or other problems. Um, and so this type of counseling, I th- understand, has basically three points where you confront and, and Christian love. If, if, this is basically what you read in the New Testament, when somebody is actively uh, rebelling against God and committing sin, that the Christian counseling would be a, a person who knows them, goes to them in love, and says, hey, what you're doing is contrary to what God would have you do. It's an act of, of sin. It harms you. It harms the community. It harms others. And in love, bring them to repentance or back to So it's it's the principle of, of loving them, confronting the sin, and counseling them to repent. That's what the no th- I think there's a place for that in the church. I think that those principles also do apply in a professional office when you uh, build a rapport, patient knows you care about them, the love, you confront or diagnose what you understand to be wrong, and then you bring a plan to bear that will help restore them to wellness. Now, those principles apply, but you're not doing it. Um, the Nalthic view, though, does it through quoting Bible scriptures and passages to point out how that what they're doing is sin to bring them to convention so they'll repent. I don't think that that is necessary in a professional clinical office to use that methodology. Uh, will this afternoon's session be recorded and available to members? And not only be recorded, we're going to broadcast it live. So if you get our feed, uh, you will get a, uh, an active, if you're, uh, you know, sign up with us or you just go to our website and, uh, at 1.30, we'll be broadcasting live this afternoon so that you can get this. So yes, we, but we will record it and we'll be on the website after, afterwards. Uh, thank you very much for this powerful Bible study again. What is the example that you wanted to give and you said your imagination might be different than your audience's? (laughs) (laughs) 
I have a hard time trusting a human being as as Job, uh, though he didn't understand much about what was going on. Um, did did uh, toward the Lord. Um, well, I can think of circumstances where um, a person could be in a uh, crisis of some kind uh, with family members. Uh, my wife and I out with our grandkids somewhere, and a uh, circumstance of a of a car wreck and people being trapped in a car wreck, and and I uh, can only save the grandkids if I uh, don't uh, intervene to save my wife. Uh, something like that, where my wife would trust me to do what was best in the circumstance, uh, even if I couldn't save her because she knew I was going to save the grandkids, which I know she would prefer save than her. Situations like that, I could see um, where people would trust somebody with their life. Um, well, and old people give someone the power of attorney. Yep. Do that. Oh, and older people give uh, give the power of medical attorney to their children to make those decisions for them, trusting their life to them. So I I, th- I think this. Yeah. Yeah. In military uh, applications. In military applications, there's plenty of places where, but but in combat, you do it per, not not always because you trust your commander. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. So would you be willing to comment on Dr. Vine's appeal to the church leadership regarding the, um, the authority of said committee to make statements um, that affect your religious freedom? Well, on that piece, I would say uh, anybody should be able to, um, to review the church manual itself. And the church is a, the, the, the Adventist institution is an organization with man-made arbitrary rules and policies that govern the institutional um, actions and conrad vines described actions taken outside the lines of institutionally delegated authority that is easily checked by anyone to see if in fact his assertions are true uh, you can check that for yourself do these committees uh an ad hoc committee and an ex uh, and a, and a um uh, exec, not executive committee, a, um, ad, ad, admin committee, adcom, the ad, administrative committee. Do these committees have the authority? My understanding is they do not. Um, but I wouldn't take my word for it. I'm not an expert on internal matters of, uh, Adventist canon law. <laughs> You can say, oh, but that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. Okay. Um, Essentially made the argument that the statements released uh, said the committees were outside the authority to do so. Uh, my understanding is that it's true, but you shouldn't take my word on it again. I'm not an Adventist canon law lawyer. Um, so you can check it for yourself. Do you know how the leadership is responding? No, um, they, uh, they tend not to communicate with me. Uh, he referenced one individual who specifically lost her job because of the statements by the committee who had financial conflicts of interest in releasing those statements. This seems alarming, um, what has been done and how this has been handled. How can we financially support an organization who doesn't protect our own personnel, our own personal efforts to provide financially for our own households? Well, that's an excellent question, and I think every person should think that through very carefully and decide on themselves um, where the Lord is leading them and to put their, not just money, their time. What witness, what message are they taking to the world? Is your evangelism today um, uh, focused on getting more people to join a particular denominational group? Or is your evangelism today focused on more people coming to know God's methods, characters, and principles and live them in their life? Those are not always the same thing. 
Okay, historically, I can tell you my historic evangelism, I had the false belief, and it's a false belief, that salvation and what we needed to do was to get everybody to join a particular denomination. And we have to baptize them in that particular denomination, have them eat the right foods and go to church on the right day and dress in the right way. And if we could do that, then we would evangelize. It's all false. That's not, that's not it. And defining Adventism as people who promote that. Right. The real Adventists, I will tell you, the real true Adventists, in Christ's day, there were two, two types of Judaism. And remember, and I'm using them as a metaphor because the Jewish nation was God's chosen church on earth at the day. Okay, I believe the Adventist church has been chosen by God for, its, for a mission. The, Jew, the Jewish people were not chosen for exclusive salvation. They were chosen for a mission. There were people outside the Jewish nation being saved all through the Old Testament. You can give many examples, Naaman, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, other people uh, that were not Jewish that were being saved. But the Jewish people had a mission. The mission be avenue for the Messiah and prepare the world for the, for the advent of the Messiah. That was their mission. The Adventist Church, I, I believe, was called for a mission to prepare the world for the second Advent. Uh, ex- salvation is not exclusively found in this organization, yeah. and, in, and in Christ's day, though, within w- but within the body of the mission, there were two forms of Judaism. There was the Judaism you saw in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ showed you what it was supposed to look like, and how did He treat the Samaritan at the well? How did He treat the Roman centurion that came to Him uh, with a sick? Um, uh, um, servant. How, how, did, how did he treat people, uh, the, the tax collectors and, and so forth and so on? You see, true Judaism, there was no sectarianism, there was no bigotry or bias. How did he treat women? And so forth and so on. Okay? And then there was the fake Judaism, the false Judaism, the perverse Judaism that you see in the Sadducees and Pharisees. Okay? They're the ones who killed Jesus. Sadly, the world thought Judaism was what the Sadducees and Pharisees did, and most of the people did too. They did not understand that that was all false and that what Jesus showed was, was what true Judaism was supposed to be. I say the same thing is in the Adventist church. You have a fake Adventism, which the organization embraced in 1888 when they rejected the 1888 message and doubled down on imposed law and penal substitution theology. And you have true Adventism, which is the healing remedy model that was the righteousness by faith message that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is the healing message that transforms hearts and minds and restores us to actual unity with God to prepare us to, for the advent of the Messiah. That is the real message, and our church, sadly, has been wandering in the wilderness because it's been led primarily organizationally and institutionally by those who have, have embraced the false law model. And they are not uplifting the law of God. They're uplifting the pharisaical legal as- applications of what they understand the law to be. But the real law is the law that's written in your heart and mind. Okay? And so that's what I see happening um, now. And so you have to decide um, where God is calling you and where you want to support for the final message to go forward. All righty. Many people say that you don't believe in a literal heavenly sanctuary, the books, the records in heaven, the investigated judgment. Um, I find find that hard to believe um, when the Bible and the way clear reveal these things. Uh, I would encourage you, first off, go to the website, read the, read this, read this, it addresses it, okay? I would tell you, ask questions, okay? Much of what you read in Scripture and Ellen White's writings are written in symbolism and metaphor. Symbolism and metaphor, If you don't, symbolism and metaphor are valuable as they point our minds towards some reality. 
If the symbol or metaphor is not connected to reality, it becomes fantasy. Okay? Much of the historical beliefs have been stuck in symbolism. This is true throughout all of Christianity. Go to any church, Adventist or not Adventist, some weekend, and hear the, the hymn, There's Power in the Blood. And then ask the question, is there actual power in the blood? The red corpuscles, the white corpuscles? Or is there power in the one who shed his blood? Where's the power? The myths, the, the superstitions of the Dark Ages church taught there was power in the stuff. If we can get the shroud that the blood touched, and, and we, we have power in that thing. We got the spikes. We got a piece of wood from the cross. We got these, and what do they call those things? They, they collect relics. We have these relics that we can collect because they have power in them because they have blood on them from Jesus. If you had, if you could actually get a piece of wood that had, had blood from his feet on it, would you have some power? No. So when it comes to understanding the sanctuary, you have to move past the metaphor to the reality. Ellen White does this in a few places where she explicitly states that the stones that make the heavenly temple are living people. You and me. We are the stones that are fitted for the temple in heaven. And the stones in the temple in heaven, she says, must not be dead. They must be living beings. So I believe in a literal heavenly temple. I just say, use your scripture in Ellen White and start with the question and go hunt for it. Do your research. Find every text that describes what the temple in heaven is constructed out of. I read one in our class today. Know ye not that you're living stones being built together in a house for the Lord? There's a text that, in, that describes what the heavenly house is built out of. Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the apostles, the foundation... This is what the Bible describes. This is what Ellen White describes in many places. Can you set the record straight and let us know whether you believe in literal heavenly sanctuary books and record? Okay. The Bible talks about records in heaven. Again, read. I tell you, I dress it all in here. What is recorded in the records in heaven? So, so whoever, whoever wrote this question, when you hear about records in heaven, do you think parchments? Do you think lambskin? Do you think bound books from a printing press? Do you think a DVD or a CD, maybe one of those, the five inch and the three quarter inch? Floppy. Floppy disk, yeah. Do you think that's what it means, a little floppy disk in heaven It's got that's recording? No, they, understand, record books in heaven are a symbol of some recording device. We don't know what it is. But I call them the heavenly servers. And what's recorded there according to Scripture? What is recorded there according to Scripture? Names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and everyone will be judged by what's written in the book. And in the Bible, what are your names? Character. Character. So the individuality and character of every person is perfectly recorded in heaven. And when we die, the machine... The machine... Yeah. The physical body goes to dust, disintegrates. 
But the machine isn't really what you're worried about if someone were to take this from you. What are you really worried about if somebody took yours? The data. The data. And in the Bible, Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but cannot destroy the soul. You know what the Greek word for soul is? Psyche. Psyche. From where you get psychiatry and psychology. It means your individuality. It's the software. It's It's the software. It's your personhood. And so... When we die, our individuality is stored in the Lamb's book of life. I believe that's real. I believe that's literal. And Paul says that when Christ returns in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that he, quote, quote, from Scripture, not me, brings with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And the trumpet call of God and the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ rise first. And we have in one passage the dead righteous coming down from heaven and coming up out of the grave. Why? Because when we die, our individuality is stored on a cloud server. (laughs) A heavenly server. That's right. And it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. So I very much believe in a literal recording device of some kind. I have no idea. Was it made out of crystal? Is it part of the beautiful crystals around the throne of God? I don't know how he's recording it. But I know when he, when he comes back, we get the upgrade. We get the dwelling place he's making for us. And he downloads our individuality, breathes the breath of life, which is the spirit, the panuma, the life energy. And just like this computer, it requires the hardware. It requires the software. And it requires the electricity in order to operate. So do we. We require the physical body. We require the individuality software. And we require the breath of life to operate. So that's what's happening. Okay. It says that she quotes about a couple quotes from Great Connery, Sanctuary, the Great Original, uh, so forth and so on. Yes, of course, the Sanctuary, the Great Original. But what is it? If you're thinking literally, then you're thinking, remember what Moses was shown on the mountain? He was not shown the Great Original. He was shown a pattern of the Great Original. Okay, a pattern. Anybody, you all are, there might be somebody as old as me out there, remembers sewing. Yeah. And you get go to the sewing store and you get a pattern? Yeah. If you get the pattern, do you have a dress no. or a pair of pants or a jacket? No. No. If you get architect's blueprints, do you actually have a building? No. He was not shown the heavenly sanctuary. He was shown a pattern. And the pattern was an object lesson to the temple. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build up again. Okay? Uh, it says in... um. Zechariah, that the branch will branch out to build his temple. The branch, the capital B, will branch out, leave heaven, to build his temple. What's the temple he's building? And he's the chief cornerstone. And we're the living stones. So, um, yes, Moses was given a pattern to teach an object lesson of the rebuilding or the building of the heavenly temple, which is the restoration of all of us back into union with God. That's reality. It's very real. Uh, if you wanted to inspire someone and provoke some thought, other than just saying, um, because the Bible says not to, what would you say to someone when they ask you why you don't eat pork? Because it's not healthy. Uh, this is what I say to Christians all the time. I give this lecture all the time to a large uh, non-Adventist groups, and it is absolutely true, folks. If you, um, if you, this is what's true. The ceremonial law was done away with at the cross. 
the entire ceremonial law. You can eat anything you want at all and not be ceremonially unclean. But and then I go, but were the laws of health done away with at the cross? No. And suddenly their eyes pop open. <laughs> so yes, you can eat anything you want if your only concern is about ceremonial uncleanliness. But if you actually want to be healthy, you can't eat anything you want. You have to be thoughtful and eat the foods that are best for your physiology. And I say that because, um, sadly, some Adventists um, figure out a uh, some Adventists who have a pretty good physiology uh, get on a vegan diet, and they figure out that that is absolutely the best for them, and it is. And then they want to mandate in their mind that it is best for every person. This is untrue. Because of genetic differences, various physical illnesses that people have, absorption issues. Ellen White herself said that, uh, that beans were poison to her body. I think we don't know what she means by that. <laughs> well, it was not the Feast of Trumpets, let's just say that. <laughs> okay. And so the principle is eating what's healthiest for your body. And there are many places in the world where UNICEF and, and other agencies go in and they bring chicken and rice. And they give them chicken and rice because uh, it's famine circumstances. And they either eat chicken and white rice, and the chicken gives them protein and many things that the, that the right. And if they if you tell them uh, it's a sin to, you know, at this time, uh, uh, you know, the, the people ready for translation, stop all flesh foods. And, uh, and you give them that message, and these people get pellagra, and they're going to die because they're only get eating um, the white rice. So, again, the principle is eating what's healthiest with the knowledge you have. Yes? And I think that's the key in, in all of this, especially for younger people. You grow up with being taught rules. Uh, and I sort of connected with um, the, the stages of moral development that you mentioned in your book, um, where it's just like, well, this is right or wrong. The rule says this. And so you either obey it or you don't. And then when you have intelligent people, you know, growing up, they go to university, they ask questions, they're taught to question things. Well, maybe not so much today, but they ask themselves, well, why should I do that? You know, what if, what if I'm allergic to beans and chicken does good for me? And the only answer they receive is not about... It's not about, well, what's the principle behind why you, why you live? And, and so this goes right back to the law lens we look at life through. Do we look at the law lens through a system of rules like humans, uh, which is what, the, what you're describing, or do we look at it as the principles of health and the design laws for life? And that's what we describe. So, yeah, it goes right back to it. Um, happy Sabbath. I'm interested in hearing comments about hoarders and the cause and effect since I'm watching reruns of the show. <laughs> I feel like these people can't grasp the reasons they're living. You're exactly, it, hoarding is an actual mental illness that we're talking about. It's actually a form of an, of an obsessive compulsive disorder. They actually have br- brain neurological, brain-based problems uh, that interfere with their ability to let go of things. So this is a physical illness of their brain uh, that needs to be treated. So I won't say any more about that. Um, illness if you do the opposite, if you throw everything away. <laughs> <laughs> It says, what does the text in John twenty twenty three mean? If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, um, they have been retained. What does this mean? 
So did you check the remedy? That's where I always go. When I want to know what I mean. <laughs> I always go to the remedy. So John twenty twenty three. Because uh, when I did that, I, I researched every verse before I paraphrased them. So John twenty twenty three. Let's see what I put in the remedy. Then he said to them, anyone who accepts the healing remedy you distribute will get well, but those who reject the healing remedy you distribute will not get well. So anyone who rejects, so all this, so here it goes. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, that they will be retained. In other words, people who won't, won't repent. And this idea of forgiveness, if you forgive, they're talking about, um, you can, in this context, forgive forget, move on, only to people who have repented and, uh, and are no longer a concern for the church and for the people to deal with. But if they haven't repented, then you can't forgive and forget. You have to hold accountable. And so that's how I understand that. How do you dissuade a suffering Christian from suicidal thoughts using design law instead of the typical imperial law, thou shalt not murder? Um, yeah, I've never found that to be very helpful, thou shalt not murder as a... Uh, um, and I'm not even sure it applies, frankly. I know I know the argument, but I, I'm not sure it applies at all because because the Alshon murder is always uh, uh, against others. <laughs> this is is really what it's about. So how do so my view of approaching suicide is to understand why they're suicidal. What's going on? Is this because they have a brain illness and needs treatment? And um, in my experience, I don't know that I can recall a. There might be a rare rare circumstance. Um, of somebody with a terminal illness that's suffering really, really bad, where the um, where the uh, I just want to go to sleep is actually because there's no other alternative for them, um, uh, the most merciful thing for them. But most of my patients have circumstances that are remedial, and so um, when you feel, deal with somebody who's suicidal, almost every time somebody's suicidal, it's because they find themselves in a circumstance inside their experience where they're suffering in some way, and they in their mind, don't see any out. They feel trapped in the suffering, and they don't ever see it getting better, and they lose hope. And so the idea of suicide is the exit door from a torture chamber. I can leave my torture and stop suffering. That's the idea here. And so uh, when I talk to my patients, I talk to them about that concept. And do you really want to die? If I had two buttons on the wall right now, and one you push and you immediately die, the other one you push and your pain, your problems, your divorce, whatever it is that's causing your pain, it resolves uh, mental illness. You can't push a button for that. Yeah, or yeah, it's a metaphor, a metaphor, okay? <laughs> I'll start over. Okay, have two buttons on the wall. One you push and you die. The other you push and your problems go away. Your mental illness is resolved. Your depression goes away. Your family uh, crisis is over. Your finances are better. Whatever it is that makes you feel this way. If we had that button, we pushed it, was gone. Would you still want to die? It's a metaphor. And they go, no, so you really don't want to die. What you want is you want to escape this pain and suffering you're in. It helps open that concept to their mind. Oh, I, cause they really get locked in. I just want to die. I just want to die. I just want to, no, you really, what you, this idea of suicide is really in their own mind. Their mind's way of saying, I want out of my suffering. Okay. And you, so you start, I start by reframing it. Let's work together to get you out of your suffering. Let's open other doors that you can exit this place and find joy and meaning in life again. And that's how I approach that question of the suicide. And sometimes you have to hospitalize somebody to stabilize them long enough to where they can even allow for that possibility. <sighs> um, it's asked me to explain Hebrews 5, 
7 through 10. Let's look at Hebrews 5. 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he uh, was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Okay, So what I understand happening is this is describing Jesus took upon our humanity. Once he was made perfect, made perfect, I, always, I like throwing that out. You guys have heard this before. Um, it's not talking about sinlessness. He was always sinless. Adam and Eve were sinless in Eden before they, before they took the fruit, but they were not yet perfected. Bible perfection is about maturity of character, settling into the truth such that nothing can shake you from it. That's maturity. Adam and Eve did not have that maturity in Eden. They had sinlessness, but they were immature, and they could be shaken from their confidence and loyalty. And instead of developing a sinless character, they developed a sinful character. Christ came, tempted in every way like we are, and it says here in the text, once made perfect, became the source of salvation. Once he perfected a sinless human character, and that was finalized, it is finished at the cross where he eradicated the infection of fear and selfishness and replaced it with perfect love and trust in God. And he did this by exercising only human abilities. He did not use divine abilities to overcome. Tempted in every way, just like we are, without sin. And so that's, once he did that, he became the source of salvation, He, which is, Ellen White writes in Zyre of Ages 761, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. And that's what, so it's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. We get the new heart and right spirit. We get a new, perfected human character brought to us by the Holy Spirit through the victory of Christ. And we have new desires, and we identify with that, and we choose to follow uh, along with that. And then we're solidified in that as well. So that's what I understand that means. Let's see. Um, this thing's bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. Where were we? And this thing is, uh, I don't know why, but you know, it, it's, it's a place where people post. And for whatever reason, one posts, and it posts up uh, uh, in the middle of ones I've already... Right, so it's very confusing. No, I haven't. There's a whole bunch down here. Are you sure I've answered them all? There's a bunch more. I just they're just bouncing all over the place. It's hard to see them. Is it the glory of Jesus the second coming? And uh, destroys the wicked, the same glory that destroys the wicked at the end of the thousand years. If so, why do we want to say it is a physical fire the second time? Um, now, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I am the, the second coming of Christ is the first death experience. Uh, so I'm not, uh, and it says they are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. It's unclear which one that is ultimately. Could it be the uh, brightness of his glory only? Could it be some aspect of physical fire? I don't know. It's really not concerning to me because they could be like Sodom and Gomorrah as far as I'm concerned Sodom and Gomorrah had fire come down and consume them the whole city burned up that was first death experience uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki 
They had fire come down and, and destroy a bunch of them, and that was first death experience. So it's the first death experience for anybody, how it ever comes about, um, is sleep. Uh, Daniel, first death experience, he fell asleep, and he's going to sleep in the grave, into the dust, and that's first death experience. So to me, uh, the first death experience is really inconsequential how it comes about. The second death experience is all consequential. How does that come about? That's very important. Um, and so... Um, but you're correct that the fire, but let's clarify, the Bible does talk about two fires at the end. Um, there's a fire, what Peter talks about, where all the elements melt in the fervent heat. Uh, my understanding is that fire is the cleansing fire that re- recreates the earth after the wicked die um, from the fires of truth and love, and they surrender their own life back. And Ellen White actually describes that the death of the wicked, in, uh, I think it's great controversy, is voluntary with themselves and just immersion on the part of God. They voluntarily surrender back. Because they don't want to live in the presence of God in their in their state, and and they they just don't want to. But then, after all the bodies are dead, then the cleansing fires come and recreates the entire earth, and everything burns in the elements and so forth. Um, and in the Old Testament sanctuary service, they never burned animals alive. So just just a little kind of point to point out they they didn't do that. <laughs> okay. Um, What scripture describes the three-part, tripart being? Uh, Thessalonians, I can find that for you very quickly. Um, one place, uh, very quickly, would be 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Uh, may, may your whole soul, spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So five, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, just one place. You can find it other places. Any questions in the room today? Yes. Well, considering your take on the you know, destruction situation, it says that Jesus was manifest to destroy the works of the devil, which I guess would be lies or... Well, first time for you. Yeah, no, he, and, and he came to destroy the work of the devil. Ellen White says that the devil, devil, this is a quote from her, and I put them together because I think it's true. Um, see, I, I think the lie question is, is Hebrews 4, excuse me, Hebrews 2.14. He came to destroy him with the power of death that is the devil. Um, well, what is life? Life eternal is that you might know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, and now sent. What keeps us from knowing God? The lies the devil tells we believe about him. So he came to reveal the truth about God, to destroy the lies, and win us to trust that we'll know God, and that's life. So he destroys his power of death by destroying his lives. But his work, what does he work to do? Ellen White says the devil's labor to efface the image of God in man and put in Satan's image where God should be. And so he came to cleanse the temple. He came to remove all defects, all perversity that our sins have put in the spirit temple that cause us to function like and be like Satan in character. And he came to restore the image of God in man, and that's destroying the work of the devil, as I understand it. And so it, it was multi-layered. And then he came to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. How does he destroy death? He destroys death by destroying the carnal nature, um, which, is the, which is the fear and selfishness that plague us that keeps us out of harmony with life. And so he does all of these things for us and then we accept that gift and we are renewed and reborn in heart mind character and will be glorified because he is preparing a dwelling place for us isn't that kind of cool let your mind i, I say that because uh, you know we're so embedded into thinking about it uh, the mansions part of like buildings i think that's how i've always thought of it maybe you guys haven't but i always thought of it that way but now i see it differently we are being shaped we're being we are being honed we are living stones being prepared for the dwelling place or the house of God where we will dwell. It's really kind of exciting. Our minds, I, I saw, uh, my mind is still expanding on this concept. So maybe you guys can let your mind meditate and share with me some new ideas too. Yes. Well, somewhere Sister White says something about, I'm thinking it's in heaven, 
where we take our crown off and put it on a shelf? Yes. First writing. Yes, and you'll know the Adventist crowns from the non Adventist because the Adventist crowns have a watch in it. <laughs> okay, so let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the, for the love and the truth that you've given us. We pray that you will continue to watch over us and, and bless our discussion this afternoon. And we also want to ask blessing on the food we're about to partake here locally, that it will nourish us to fulfill your purposes. We pray in your holy name. Amen.